Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. First off, let me apologize. We ran into some technical difficulties on last week's episode, but I will release that one to you just as soon as we can get it straightened out. Today, my guest is Dr. Brittany McGettrick. I first met Brittany before she even started chiropractic school. At that time, she was a registered dietitian, which she still is today. In addition, she is now a Gonstead chiropractor, and she practices in Nashville, Tennessee. Today, we're going to be talking about nutrition and how the current state of American health has a negative effect on proper healing and how that can impair our ability to help our patients with an adjustment. So without any further ado, Dr. Brittany McGettrick. Hello, Dr. McGettrick. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, thanks. I'm happy to be here. Could you start off by telling us a little bit about how you got into chiropractic and more specifically how you ended up in Gone State Chiropractic? Yeah, so, I, um, so I'm so i a registered dietitian as well. So I did that first. I went to undergrad for nutrition, became a dietitian, um, and was then working as a personal trainer in San Diego. Um, was kind of looking for something else to do with my life. I didn't necessarily want to be a trainer forever, and I was sort of disillusioned with the dietetics world going through my internship. Um, so I was already looking for something else and I ended up with a knee injury. I had this weird thing where my, um, patella, my kneecap would like kind of slide out of place almost when I would go from kneeling to standing and it'd be super painful for like 30 seconds and then go away. So I had a friend, Dr. Lars Gunner, who was about halfway through chiropractic school. So I called him up. I said, Hey, you're 50% a doctor what's going on with my knee? <laughs> and he was already um, into the Gonstead technique at that time. So he found me a Gonstead doctor um, in San Diego to go see um, to help fix my knee. So I went in to see him, Dr. Ryan Carangola in Encinitas, California. And he put up my x-rays and broke down everything. He explained my x-rays to me, told me how I had a, a reverse curve in my neck and my cervical spine and how that could be related to heart and lung issues. And it really just blew my mind how powerful chiropractic was. I had no idea. Previously, I always kind of thought chiropractic was like getting a facial or just, you know, some sort of like a feel good type treatment. I didn't realize how powerful it was. Um, so he really opened my eyes to that in my first visit. And then from there, every single day, I thought about chiropractic and I was watching Dr. Ian videos on YouTube and researching everything I could about chiropractic until finally it was maybe three to six months later. And I was like, okay, am I going to think about this every day or am I just going to go do it? <laughs> so I decided to go back to school, go back to chiropractic school. Um, and so I knew from day one going into school that I was going to be a Gonstead doctor uh, because that was who who inspired me to become a chiropractor in the first place was a Gunstead doctor. Yeah, and then you've done a, a lot of your training through the seminars. Um, I'm trying to think what who other, who else have you had as a mentor? Yeah, so I went to I think I went to a total of 13 seminars while I was in school. Um, so heavily trained by them, and then working with um, I mean we worked with you. We've worked with Dr. Ping in Pasadena. Um, Jeremiah. Those were my main ones. I went to a couple GMI seminars um, when I was in school, but not too many. I mostly went to just the, the Gonstead seminars. 
Yeah. So when I first met you, you were a um, you were a vegetarian. And <laughs> I was. <laughs> now you're the exact opposite of that. <laughs> so can you tell us more about your journey from vegetarianism to um, T Rex? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> T-Rex. I like that. I'm going to own that. Yeah. So now I'm a full carnivore. All I eat is meat. I don't eat any fruits or vegetables or grains or anything else. Um, yeah. So when I was 19, I read a book that talked about basically going vegan and talked about the meatpacking industry and how gross it was and all that kind of stuff. So it grossed me out. And so I was like, oh, I'll, I'm going to go vegan. So I did that for about a year. And then I really liked ice cream and cheese. So I put dairy back in my diet. So I wasn't vegan anymore. I was vegetarian. <laughs> Um, and I would eat fish occasionally, but not too much. Um, so I did that for about six years. So I was vegetarian my whole time through, um, undergrad nutrition, my dietetic internship, becoming a dietitian, I was vegetarian and it wasn't until I went to chiropractic school and, um, started shadowing Jeremiah who his undergraduate was in biochemistry. So he was very knowledgeable in nutrition as well. And he was talking about how chronic wrist subluxations or chronic wrist problems um, were associated with a zinc deficiency. And myself at the time, I was a yoga teacher and practicing yoga all the time. And I had terrible wrists. I would have wrist pain all the time. Sometimes I wasn't able to practice yoga. I would get them adjusted, which would help a little bit, but it would always come back. Um, but I kind of wrote off his theory because I was like, why why just the wrist? Like if it was a zinc deficiency, wouldn't that affect your whole, like all of your joints? Why would it just be the wrist? I was like, that's ridiculous. And so I didn't think anything of it. And then a few months went by, we went up to shadow him again. The conversation came up again. My wrists were still very inflamed and in pain at the time. Um, so I just was like, well, this doesn't really make sense to me, but I guess I'll try. <laughs> so I put red meat back into my diet because one of the best sources of zinc in the diet is red meat. So I put red meat back into my diet and right away, my wrists got so much better. They were so much less inflamed. They would hold their adjustments for a long period of time. I could do all the yoga I wanted, and they were pretty much okay. So from there, I didn't really look back. I you know, kept meat in my diet. And then about two years after that, I heard about the carnivore diet on Joe Rogan's podcast. And a friend, Lars, was also um, doing it. So he encouraged me to do it with him for try it out for 30 days. And that was January of 2018. So we did 30, day, 30 days of carnivore. And I had such phenomenal results from it that I just decided to keep eating this way because I feel so good <laughs> on this diet. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And uh, in your diet, well, in your, your dietetic training, did they, uh, talk, did they talk anything about basically wound healing? Like, is there any concept of nutrition for wound healing? Um, there is, I mean, we definitely cover that because there's things like diabetic ulcers will happen, you know, and you need to know things about wound healing, but the, th the thing with dietitians, so when we look at this, the institution of dietetics, we kind of have to go back to the beginning. So the American dietetic association, which is now called the Academy of nutrition and dietetics, is basically the governing board that is in charge of dietitians. It was founded by a woman who was a Seventh-day Adventist, I believe is the religion she was part, a part of. And that religion is vegetarian. And like being vegetarian is part of that religion. <laughs> and she is the one who founded the American Dietetic Association. So 
the roots of the governing body of dietitians is rooted in being a vegetarian. So what we learn in school and through our internships and everything is that basically all diets can be acceptable. So if you want to be a vegetarian, it's totally okay. You know, there's a way to make a vegan diet healthy, everything in moderation. They very much preach the food pyramid, which is now my plate. Um, so yes, we covered wound healing, but it was never, they never would have said, oh, go for a fully carnivore diet to really, you know, help with wound healing. They would say, oh, if you want to be a vegetarian, that's fine. We'll find workarounds for it. But in reality, that's not necessarily always true. <laughs> that's interesting. When, when you're practicing in your practice, do you, uh, do you give nutrition advice to people? Do you have that as part of your practice or is it just something you throw out from your knowledge base or how do you use that? Yeah, so I don't necessarily <clears throat> sit down with people and do like nutrition consults in my practice. I, I keep it pretty chiropractic based. Um, so there's coming in, getting adjusted. I definitely talk about it. So on pa patients first visit, I'll always ask them, you know, how their digestion is. And from there, you know, talk about their diet a little bit. <clears throat> if patients need a more focused program, I'm open to helping them with that. But it's not like, <clears throat> I don't tell them, you know, come in and get adjusted. And then tomorrow come in and we're going to talk about your food. <laughs> but I have had <clears throat> a few patients, so like I had one recently who um, had pancreatitis. And so they were asking me for recommendations for that. And so I put together like a full workbook for them um, to go over basically like a 30 day program, essentially. And when, so for, so when I first started, so I've only been in practice about a year. So when I was about six months into my practice, <clears throat> I was looking for health coaches or people that I could reach out to where if my patients wanted to go a deeper dive into nutrition, I could just refer them to a health coach. But I found that most health coaches out there preach eating all your fruits and vegetables and meat is just kind of maybe mentioned or it's not that big of a deal to them. Whereas for me, I prefer people to be on a meat-based diet. I've really found that that can be very helpful for many people. So in light of that happening, I was like, well, I guess, you know, if you want it done right, you got to do it yourself. <laughs> so I started to develop an online carnivore diet program, um, sort of loosely. And then once Corona hit the world, it really kicked me into high gear to get that going. So <laughs> now I have an online carnivore diet program that I'm able to refer my patients to, um, which makes it much easier. Um, so I have, so most of my nutrition counseling and coaching is done more in the online space. Whereas in my office, I keep it, um, pretty much to, to Gonstead chiropractic. That's great. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, do you, I'm sure you, like all of us, I'm sure you see people who are on all kinds of different diets and fad diets and this kind of thing. Is there anything that's like a huge red flag to you that if somebody's like, well, I'm on this diet, then you go, well, I need to fix that before I can, before chiropractic is going to be effective. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, so I have a big concern for people who are on vegan and vegetarian diets. I, I'm really at this point now, and I was, I was vegetarian for six years. Like I'm a dietitian. I've looked at the science and now I've been carnivore for two years. So, I mean, I've done the full spectrum in my own body and I've looked at many, many, many different articles and listen to podcasts and things like that. Like I've, I've done the research and I really am concerned for people on a vegan or a vegetarian diet. I really, I'm not convinced that there is a way to do it and be able to thrive. 
So it's not necessarily, I don't know that chiropractic won't be effective until they change their diet. I think we can, I mean, we definitely see, you know, big changes in people, but there are certainly people who would benefit so much more if they would just eat more, more animal-based nutrition and have their chiropractic adjustments being done at the same time. Yeah, I have the, um, it was kind of brought to my attention because I like to be like a, an ostrich and stick my head in the ground and not pay attention to what's happening around me. Um, but <laughs> around students is great because they make me pull out my head out and pay attention. Yeah. Um, and they were pointing out to me that I guess there was this whole thing about um, a guy was looking at uh, vegetarian diets and he started looking at athletes and he found that in every major sport, the most notable vegetarian was at that exact time injured, all of them. And, and his whole point was that vegetarian diets make it so that you start getting, you, you can't, you're not building tissue. And so you have, you can't heal, you can't re-strengthen things, you can't be taxing them and coming back from it. And so that's what first got me thinking about this issue. And I was like, you know, that's a big deal. And I know a lot of people's diets are screwed up and not just because they're on a vegetarian diet or any fad diet or anything like that. It's just diets are just messed up because a lot of people just don't know how to eat a healthy diet. Um, they haven't really been taught that. And there's a lot of things in life that if nobody teaches you, you just don't know. And so I started thinking about that. I was like, you know, when we're adjusting people, so often I find myself explaining to them that we're relying on your body to heal. We need your discs to heal. We need your nerve to heal. We need things to self-regulate. We need this whole process. But if you're putting garbage in, it's not going to have the resources it needs. Even like, like you were saying with the wrist and zinc, who would ever think that, that you would need to have zinc <laughs> to make your wrist heal right? Um, yeah. And yet who's eating their diet going, well, I got to make sure I get enough of this or I won't have enough zinc. Like that's just, that's not how we think. And so I started thinking, you know, it's kind of a big deal. I think for a lot of Gonstead practices that when we're doing things and we're making changes and we need people to heal, if they're not getting good nutrition, we're going to, we're going to run into some problems. Yeah. Well, and I think, cause you said this a little bit, we chatted before, before we kind of started. And I, and I, it's funny cause I had just mentioned this in, um, to someone else recently. So I think it was you who said this, it was either you, Jeremiah or Lars, but in the last couple of years that in Gonstead's day, he got phenomenal, crazy results because, well, because of what he was doing, but also because people's diets were different. So back in the day when he was adjusting, it was mainly people's main problems were biomechanical issues. But now today we've got people who have biomechanical issues and biochemistry issues. Mm -hmm. So yes, we can see great results fixing the biomechanics, but we've got to sort of come in with the, the biochemistry side of it as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then what do you think about things like uh, intermittent fasting? That's another one of those fads that I know a lot. I got a lot of patients who are like, well, I'm intermittent fasting and doing keto. And to me, I separate the two out. Yes, they often go together, but intermittent fasting, what do you think of that as far as um, people's health? Yeah, I think intermittent fasting is, is fine if people want to do it. Um, there's, I mean, I've seen some research that talks about the benefits of fasting, which most of, I feel like what I've looked at is more like long-term fasting. There's, um, like a study that came out not too long ago that was really popular was showing how your entire immune system can regenerate if you fast for three days. So those like long-term fasts, I think have a place, um, in, in our diets. Um, if people choose to do that, I, 
And for myself, so I had tried intermittent fasting before. So when I was eating red meat, but still also, I kind of was like on a high carb paleo diet, I would call it. Um, Cause I was gluten-free eating red meat back into my, you know, kind of high carb vegetarian diet. And I could not do intermittent fasting. I felt so crappy by the time it was noon for me to eat. I had a headache. I was tired. I just did not feel good. But once I started the carnivore diet, I've actually naturally been able to start intermittent fasting where, because I just don't get as hungry. The carnivore diet gives me this steady state energy all day long. And really the steady state of feeling satisfied. Like I'm never super bloated or I'm never like have that food baby feeling. And I don't usually get to a point where I'm just mad, starving, hungry. So that is what allowed me to start sort of naturally doing intermittent fasting. I think it can be good from a convenience side of things, but I don't know that it's necessarily a cure-all. And if people are going to stay on just a standard American diet, but throw an intermittent fasting in there, then I think they're kind of using it for the wrong reasons. (laughs) Yeah. And you're probably going to be hungry a lot. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I did a, I'm, you know, I'm always experimenting on myself. So I decided to give myself a experimental challenge and it's probably a midlife crisis because I said to myself, I'm going to be 45 in a couple months. And I thought, I wonder if I can get in as good a shape at 45 as I was when I was 20 and I quit playing football. So the exercise side was no big deal. I thought, I know what to do there. That's no big deal. But I knew that I was going to have to make diet changes. And that's when it became a big question. So um, that's when I started thinking, well, do I do this or do I do that? And I experimented a little bit with keto and, um, and intermittent fasting. And my main form of exercise that I use primarily is cycling. And what I found was really funny with keto and intermittent fasting is that when I first started doing that, I would... Um, so. Usually if you do like, if you ride for like an hour, um, like a really intense ride for about an hour, somewhere between 45 minutes and an hour, you're going to start to bonk. So you often need some kind of nutrition to keep you going. Well, mm-hmm. on keto, I bonked the first time after like 25 minutes of riding, I was done. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, nothing. And I was like, wow, the tank is empty really fast on this way. But after doing that a few times, it kind of started coming back to me. But then I kind of had an epiphany and I was like, no, I don't want to do this. I tried. I don't want to do it. So um, I started doing, it's kind of weird. Um, I am, so I do gluten-free. I do gluten-free mainly because with my gallbladder issues, it gives me trouble. So that's the only reason I do it. Um, so I do that free, but then I do a lot of meat. Um, and I do sugar-free because sugar is unhealthy. Um, we can talk about that too, <laughs> since it's a yeah. drug and food. Um, so I got rid of all that. But one of the things I did that was kind of interesting is I did the opposite of intermittent fasting. I started eating six times a day because when I was in high school, that's what I did. And it was always very effective. So I've gone back to eating six times a day makes a big difference. You just don't eat like a four course meal six times a day. Um, <laughs> yeah. the rock. Um, I eat, I eat like um, 100 to 200 calories at a time. And I do it throughout the day as I'm working. And I never get hungry. In fact, last night, I didn't get home from working till about 830 at night. And I got home and my brain said, you need to eat dinner. And I was like, eh, I'm not even that hungry. Like it just kind of, it's fine because you're eating so much, you're not getting starved. So I've been kind of experimenting with these different things. And so that, that's also why I'm asking questions too, is I'm just kind of curious um, for experience other than just my own, since I'm always experimenting and it's not a very controlled trial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's good to know though. It's good to know what works 
in your body and kind of figure those things out. Cause I mean, I've kind of done the same thing, swinging from vegetarian to carnivore, experimenting mm-hmm. with my own body and seeing what happens. <laughs> well, I don't, I think that that actually is an important thing that gets left out is that we, people try to act like there's one diet that's perfect for everybody, but I do think people are different and you do have to figure out what works for you. Because um, for me, the gallbladder issues I was having, which I do believe I genetically inherited a failed gallbladder because a lot of my symptoms I can trace back to when I was about 15, which is absurd. Um, So I think it was failing me a long time. And I could could never quite figure out what was bothering it. And there were certain foods I continued to eat because I liked them. And I just told myself, ah, that can't be it. And then once I did an elimination diet where I started eliminating things one at a time to see what made a difference, I started discovering that some of my favorite foods were things that I shouldn't be eating. And then it was like, well, but that doesn't mean nobody should eat them. It just means I can't eat them. So you just got to tailor it to yourself and figure out what you need. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree that there's definitely varying degrees of what people can tolerate, but I do think that having red meat in the diet is very important for everyone (laughs) or having at least like essentially a meat heavy diet is pretty important for everyone. And that, I mean, if you go back to many, many years ago, that's how we evolved as humans. But I think where we differ a lot in modern days is what toxic exposure our bodies have had and therefore what our bodies can tolerate. Mm -hmm. That's where I feel like the differences come in. But I wouldn't say that like a vegetarian diet is right for really anyone. (laughs) Which is an unpopular opinion, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> well, I, so I think it's funny because even as you said with vegetarian, I, I get the whole idea. And actually, I've thought of it for a while too, that I don't necessarily like the way meat processing is done. And I don't like the industry and I don't like a lot of the regulation, but that doesn't suddenly mean that your body doesn't need meat. And it's kind of like, I can think of under, other industries where I don't necessarily like the way things are done, but it doesn't mean I can just dispose of the whole industry. So it's kind of like that because you do need, um, I mean, red meat's a great source of iron. We need iron. A lot of people are iron deficient. So um, there's a lot of things you get in meat that you only get from meat. So it is good. To, it, it, I can see that it definitely is valuable to have in the diet. And, and I think we can see the evidence that when people don't have it, it negatively affects them for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and with that too, it's like if people are, re- are very concerned with you know, treatment of animals or the meatpacking industry and things like that, there's grass-fed farms that you can get your meat from. And those animals are treated very well and they live their life, you know, grazing on grass and their farmers love them until it's time, you know, for them to be killed, which that's just the circle of life. (laughs) Everything, you know, on this planet is, it is born and then it lives its life and then it dies and it all serves a purpose. And that's where also with a carnivore diet is eating nose to tail and making sure you're not wasting any part of the animal. And you're really honoring that animal's sacrifice to give you good nutrition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So I, uh, so last night, last night I was doing some research and I kind of went down a rabbit hole and it was actually on a different, it was something totally different. But then I kept thinking, this is so appropriate. So I'm going to kind of show you my rabbit hole. And then we'll, we'll get your opinions about some of these things. Because maybe you can even help me. Because So it all okay. started, uh, I'm looking at dysautonomia. For my, my lecture, I have to give it meaning of the minds. And so I'm looking at dysautonomia, which is dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system. And the way this rabbit hole started was I discovered in reading through research papers that one of the most common 
causes of dysautonomia and therefore, well, not therefore, but as a result, or actually probably even unrelated, is the fact that it's also the most ignored cause. So the thing that causes the most dysautonomia is the thing that we insist on ignoring. And it's something that I think they very kindly call high calorie malnutrition. <laughs> wow. Which is a little, little bit masked version of, hey, dude, stop eating at McDonald's. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so I started looking at this. And I was like, high calorie malnutrition. So you chase that a little bit. And what you find out is that what they're saying is that when your food is high in carbs and fat, carbs and fat are not nutrient dense. And so if your food is high in carbs and fat, but low in protein, it's going to not be nutrient dense, which means you're going to miss out on certain nutrients. They've then discovered, this is how I got stuck in the rabbit hole, that among, that in this malnutrition, one of the number one things that we get now malnourished about is B1, thiamine. Then I started typing in, I'm like, okay, so what happens if you don't have enough of that? Mm -hmm. So it turns out that that's strongly connected to SIDS. And Whoa. I actually wrote this down because I thought this was very interesting. Um, mild to moderate uh, thiamine deficiency results in pseudo hypoxia in the limbic system and brain stem. Emotional and stress reflexes of the autonomic nervous system are stimulated and exaggerated, producing symptoms often diagnosed as psychosomatic disease. Um, so basically what I found was that when you are thiamine deficient, it looks a lot like um, suffocation. <laughs> basically you get anoxia of your brain. So it yeah. looks like you're suffocating. And then, as this thing said, the re your reflexes, your autonomic reflexes are exaggerated. So it looks like you're out of control, not subdued. And then it gets often diagnosed as psychosomatic disease. So, um, so I'm just curious in the whole diet, dietitian world, are the, uh, does anybody ever talk about specific conditions caused by lack of certain vitamins? Or is it just like vitamins are lumped together and either they're good, they're bad or whatever? So we do learn about vitamin deficiencies, but we also, like, I remember in school, they would go like, okay, B1, thiamine, this deficiency causes this disease, you know, B2, this deficiency causes this disease. We go over all of those, but at the end of that lecture, they always say, but we don't see that anymore in America because this really only happens in third world countries because all of our food here is fortified. So we're all fine here in America, essentially. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But that is crazy. That rabbit hole that you just went down kind of blew my mind. <laughs> Maybe, because this is what I find all the time, is that we have these policies and we say things and this is the rhetoric that goes. And yet you don't, I find, I don't have to look through the research very hard to start finding these rabbit holes where I'm like, this is totally contrary to everything I've ever heard. And yet here it is right here. And they can not only say that here's what happens, but they can give me details about it. So my rabbit hole goes a little bit further. <laughs> um I kept writing things down because I was like, this is mind-blowing. Um, so thiamine is a rate-limiting cofactor for pyruvate and alpha-ketoglutamate in the metabolism of carbohydrates, meaning that if you're eating a high-carbohydrate diet, but you don't have enough thiamine, you're in big trouble. Well, I'm like, that's, like, that's America. <laughs> you yeah. just find America. <laughs> um, and then I found stresses imposed by infection, head injury, and inoculation can initiate intermittent cerebellar ataxia in thiamine deficiency. And I was like, okay, so you're telling me somebody gets sick, hurts their head, or gets a vaccine, and if they happen to be thiamine deficient, 
that's how they can get this cerebellar ataxia where it's like they're suffocating. Well, that's insane. And it's yeah. right there in the research. Um, yeah. And then I thought people might be interested in knowing that um, if you do a blood test on a patient, erythrocyte transketolase is the blood test, test that measures thiamine because it's me you're now measuring its phosphate as it enters directly into the bloodstream. And then you can also test pyruvic acid because it increases during acute beriberi. So I thought that was interesting. So I was like, see, we even have a way to detect it. If you're doing a blood test, you can find out. Um, oh, and then another crazy thing. So, okay, so thiamine deficiency, if it's not corrected at the early stage that we were talking about, it then mm -hmm. leads to neurodegeneration. Well, think about how many neurodegenerative diseases we have. So that's everything. And yeah. then the final coup de gras was that overconsumption of thiamine is unknown and studies show that amounts taken well in excess of the daily value can actually enhance brain functioning. So it's like there's no upper limit on what you can have and it just makes you smarter and smarter. Yeah. And foods high in thiamine are pork, fish, seeds, nuts, beans, green peas, tofu, brown rice, squash, asparagus, and seafood. And so I was like, well, maybe I should eat more of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> smarter. Uh, and I won't have any of these other horrible things that they're defining. And I was thinking, those are a lot of really bad things. And I never, I remember in school, I hardly remember even talking about thiamine. Like, oh, it's a B vitamin. Move on. Like, I don't remember that much about it. And yet here's a whole bunch of horrible things. And these are things we actually see. And it could be solved by just giving people some thiamine. Uh, and then it turns out that thiamine and magnesium, I guess, are, I read a paper that said that those are the two greatest uh, malnutritions in the United States. Yeah. And they actually wow. work together. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing too, is even being a dietitian, all I learned about B1 was the deficiency disease is called beriberi. Here's a couple symptoms of it, which is nothing that you listed. The symptoms are just like loss of appetite, weakness, pain in the limbs, like just sounds like not that big of a deal. And then they just move on. Okay. Next one. Here's what the condition is called. And what I find interesting too, is that, so B1 is also a big one that is fortified in food. So it's, so a lot of like all the carbs, like even the crappy carbs that we're eating today are all fortified with B1. So I want to know, it sounds to me like this fortified fake B1 that we're trying to manufacture is not actually providing us <laughs> with what we actually need. Right. That's Which, what it sounds like. Because if you've got people saying, oh, don't worry, it's all fortified. And then a lot of doctors are looking at it going, oh, your food's fortified. You're fine. And then the research is like, everybody's got a malnutrition problem. Well, yeah. Something's not yeah. And that's why I'm such a fan of getting your, all of your nutrients from good animal foods because animal foods are the most bioavailable. So when you eat a steak, your body absorbs the most nutrients that it can out of that. All plants have anti-nutrients in them that prevent certain things from being absorbed. That's why you get way more iron from beef than you do from spinach. And nothing like man has never done anything better than nature. We've never created anything better than nature. So why do we think that this B1 that we made in a lab and then stuffed inside of a bagel is going to be better for us than what we can find out natu in natural sources? Yeah. And I think that's a lot of the confusion because I know I have, my mom taught me when I was young to read labels at the grocery store. So I do <laughs> um, all the time. And I'm kind of baffled when I read some stuff and I'm like, 
well, that's not the real thing. That just has like the thing in it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah it's, like, it's, it's really kind of weird. The stuff that gets passed off as being, oh, it's basically this. Well, I don't want basically that. I want actual that. I want the thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But then people, but then that's the thing, like you were saying, people who are not educated about nutrition, they'll just see it on the label. Oh, it's fortified. Oh, it's, it's good for me. Like this should be enough. I'm getting all my vitamins. Here I go. Yeah. And I think as a population, we're probably a little bit on the, well, let's just say a little bit. We're on the naive side where we just kind of say, well, they're making these foods and the FDA is governing it. So it should all work out because somebody's making sure that the good stuff's in there since I don't know what it is. And <laughs> they don't realize that really none of these people are on your team. <laughs> They're all on yeah. their own. So <laughs> not going to work out well. And yeah, I think what the best advice I ever got with shopping was just stay to the outside and don't go down the aisles. And yeah. I noticed when we're doing that, I got a lot healthier. <laughs> um, yep. Yeah, trying make a big difference. If I'm if I'm training and I'm really pushing my body hard, the foods I have to increase because you want to increase your calories, but you don't want to just start eating garbage calories. So you increase more of your good food. I just end up eating more and more of the stuff that's on the outside of the store. And so now it's like I'll just do one lap, grab things on the way by and I can do my shopping in five minutes or less. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Very easy. Yeah. So um so let me let me think here. If we uh, if if we if you were trying to help other Gonstead doctors, what what kind of advice would you give them about about addressing even addressing the issue of nutrition with patients? I think sometimes it's an issue we don't really want to address because we don't feel qualified. I mean, it's help it's helpful when you have a label behind your name like you do, um, but for us, it's like well, I, I I always feel like that. Like I don't really know. Like. I only know what I know because I figured it out, but it's not like I have a formal education or like I'm an expert in it. So I generally avoid nutrition. I'm sure a lot of other people do too. How would you address that or would you even? Yeah. Um, and that's a great question. So the easiest way for me to start talking about it with my new patients is I always, when I'm taking their history, um, like I always kind of get to the end and I have my three like main questions that I want to make sure I ask us, how is their sleep? If it's a woman, I ask how their, her periods are. And then I ask everyone how their digestion is. So that's kind of a good segue into, you know, you can ask them how their digestion is, if they have problems with it, or even if they say it's fine, you know, you can have asked them, do you follow any specific diet, any special diet, anything like that. And so that's a good way if people want to talk about it, that's sort of how I segue into it and start talking about it with my patients. But I think for, for each doctor, it will kind of depend. So if, if you are a doctor who is really interested and fascinated in all of the nutrition information, then I would say take the time to educate yourself around it. You know, there's plenty of podcasts and books and people on Instagram that you can follow out there that are putting out really good info. Um, so if that's what you want to do, you can kind of self-educate yourself. I mean, I yes, I learned the basics becoming a registered dietitian. But I learned so much more in the last two years of being a carnivore and just listening to people's podcasts and reading research and kind of doing my my own education around it. I've learned way, way more that way. So it's not you, people don't necessarily have to go back to school or they don't have to go get a, a certification to to feel qualified to talk about nutrition. Um, so I would say if you're a doctor who is 
curious about that stuff and you want to be able to help your patients with it and talk to them about it, then just start educating yourself and you can start, you know, sharing podcasts that you listen to with your patients, or you can, you know, if if someone has a question, you can just send them to that podcast or kind of encourage the patients to start educating themselves as well. But on the other, on the flip side of that too, I would say if you're a doctor who really just wants to adjust and you, you know, that nutrition is important, but you don't feel like you're passionate or excited about taking the time to take that much of a deep dive into it, then find people that you can refer to. So like for myself, for example, shameless plug here, but uh, (laughs) I have an online carnivore diet program and I do online nutrition consults. So like if you wanted to send your patients to me, who's also a Gonstead doctor, so I understand what you're doing chiropractically, and then I can work with them on the nutrition side of that then I could be a great resource to, to partner up with people in that way. Or, you know, find a local health coach in your area or someone else who you really resonate with that you could work with and just send your patients to them. And just start by asking those few questions. And then if you know that they have sort of a gap in their nutrition, then you send them, you refer them to that health coach. That's, that's great. Do you, um, do you have any particular podcast that you would recommend for people who wanted to get started trying to learn this stuff? Yeah. Uh, well for the, so for carnivore diet stuff and for like meat based, um, nutrition, I really, really like the podcast called peak human. Um, that's a really good one too. That's pretty easy for like patients to understand for lay people to understand. Um, and then Paul Saladino, who's carnivore MD on Instagram, he has a really great podcast as well. And his gets a little bit more into like the sciencey part of things. Um, so patients can still, of course, listen to it and they'll get a lot out of it. But also that'd be a really good one for the doctors. They'll probably understand a little bit more of it also. Um, so his is called Fundamental Health Podcast. Um, those I'd say, those are my two biggest ones for carnivore diet that that I recommend. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm gonna have to check those out. Yeah. Oh, so here's the, here's the other side of it. Okay. So we've got the obvious problem of people being malnourished and you can't always tell Mount. That's the hard thing about malnourishment is you can't tell by looking at somebody that they're malnourished. Like if somebody was thiamine deficient, how would you know? So like you can't look and see, but then we have this other problem that people wear on the outside and that is the obesity problem. Cause we've got that in this country as well. That's the other half of the high calorie malnutrition. Um, yeah. <laughs> so Obviously, that does affect us because, as I've always said, if people gained weight symmetrically, we might not have biomechanics issues that come from being obese. But because we don't, and the belly tends to grow out more than the butt does and so forth, (laughs) um, it moves our center of gravity. And then we have to adapt around that, and it causes weird movement patterns. So I can definitely see that there are patients where, in fact, I have a couple patients I can think of right off the top of my head, where they've got bad back problems, but then you say to yourself, or they want to know, is this ever going to be better? Well, the catch is as long as you are overweight and you're not only putting additional weight on this, but you're putting it in an abnormal angle due to the change of center of gravity, then no, you may not get better because it's continuing to be weird. So then there comes the issue of to really get the most out of chiropractic, we need to address the obesity issue. Is that something that you ever do in your practice of trying to deal with? um, We need to get you thinner and get you holding your weight in a more biomechanically advantageous position? Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's a tough one because especially when someone is that far overweight, it's, it's obviously been affecting them for a long time. So it's something, you know, that's going to take a lot of work on their part to 
to make those changes um, that they that they need to make. But yeah, I feel like I see that all the time. And not only, I mean, yes, like being overweight and having biomechanics altered from having excess weight on your body, but also just the inflammation factor. People could be of normal weight, but they are so inflamed on the inside that they're not able to hold their adjustments or their their joints or their nerves are just still getting so irritated by what's going on in there. And so that that's a good segue too if for doctors to start talking to their patients about nutrition. If you've been just sticking to chiropractic, if they're coming in after, you know, a couple of weeks and not much is changing, that's a really good time. Even if you brought it up on the first visit, but maybe haven't chatted about it since, that's a good time to bring it up again of talking about their diet and letting them know that what you eat will affect your pain level coming from your spine as well. Yeah. So I think a good one is, I, cause I see this one all the time. So let's say soda consumption. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, yes. When I go to the grocery store, I do judge the people in front of me <laughs> when I see their cart. Um, <laughs> Same. There's times when I see people, I'm like, you're seriously going to drink that much soda? And in my head, all I see is inflammation. And I'm like, that's way too much sugar. Let me help you. Um, like, So, of course, if somebody's drinking that much soda, they would be so much healthier if they stopped. And yet they probably know that. They probably don't want to stop. We probably could even say even if they did, they probably can't stop. And so then you run into the, the whole thing of, I know you need this. You probably know you need it too. But how do we get you there? Do you have any tactics for, especially something like that, like people who drink a lot of soda really love to drink a lot of soda. So how do you change that kind of a behavior when you know what a big difference it'll make, but they probably don't want to do it? Yeah. I mean, that's like the golden question really for behavior change. <laughs> and yeah. really, I mean, with that, I feel it comes down to people, people will not change until the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of changing. So, but that's also where our patient education can come in. So if they're, you know, coming in week after week and not really seeing any change, just keep reminding them, you know, well, how much soda did you drink this week? Okay. Well, that's going to affect your pain level. And if we can just keep reminding them and reminding them and being that planting the seed and having that gentle encouragement, I would hope that eventually they understand like, okay, finally, like this back pain is not worth drinking this soda for. Yeah. A lot of that, I feel like just has to come from them, you know, and that's just like, that's the maddening thing of, of being in, in healthcare and trying to help people is you can only help people as much as they want to help themselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah, all we can do is give them information, hope they remember it, hope they do it. But yeah, there's definitely a limit on how much we can do and we can't do it for everybody. <laughs> Go to everybody's house every night and make sure they're doing the right things. So yeah, slap yeah. something out of their hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't eat that. Yeah. Do are there particular things? So, like you had said earlier, you asked people about sleep, um, their periods, and digestion. With those three, is there anything particular that nutrition-wise you're thinking of? Can make a really big difference in any, in any of those three? Um, well, digestion is my big segue into nutrition. Um, for women with their periods, um, nutrition can definitely play, play a role in that. So, but for that, I'm more so focused on, well, for that, I'm mostly focused on like 
overall body inflammation, essentially. Mm -hmm. And it's my way to also segue and find out and ask if they're on birth control, because that's going to throw everything off as well. Right. Dealing with our hormonal health. Um, I'm trying to think of if I do much with sleep and nutrition. I honestly don't do too much, but I like to know that because as we know, like chiropractic adjust, a lot of times after people get adjusted, then they sleep really well after that. Um, so it's more so a chiropractic question than a nutrition question. Yeah. So, so I have to show this story about the whole period thing. Um, and even though I'm not going to say who's the person's name, she wouldn't care if I did, but I'm not going to. Um, so anyway, so she comes and she's got pain everywhere. She keeps telling me she's got all this pain. And I adjust her a few times, trying to get it under control. Nothing's changing. And she goes, let's take an x-ray. I think all my bones are broken or something. So I'm like, all right, fine. So we take an x-ray. And she said, well, what did my x-ray look like? And I said, to tell you in all honesty, that is the best looking spine I've ever seen in my life. And she's like, don't tell me that. And I said, however, I have one question. And she said, what's that? And I said, how long has that IUD been in there? <laughs> she said, I don't know, like six years. I said, you might want to have that taken out. That thing alone, and it's funny because that alone was causing all of her trouble. She had it taken out and it solved a lot of problems. Um, and also it, she had had a tumor on her neck that came about because of it. Um, wow. But the funny thing about it is I, the x-ray is what gave it away because I'm not doing an exam. How would I know that's in there? But the x-ray, I could see it. And so it was like, it was just funny how even, even in that situation, an x-ray made it so I could figure out what it was. And once she had that taken out, she's like, I never even thought of that. And I said, I didn't either but until I saw it. And then thought, huh. So it's funny, the little things, but like you said, it proves that hormones, when hormones are out of whack, because that thing had gone totally sideways on her. When those things, when hormones are out of whack, it messes up everything. And then the diet problems just become magnified because of it. Yeah, it really blows my mind how messed up women's bodies can get from birth control. And then it also blows my mind how normalized we have made putting synthetic hormones inside of your body day after day after day. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like people don't realize how, how much birth control can really affect your life and mess up your health in crazy ways. Yeah. The effect that hormones have on cells is mind boggling. Uh, and then the way cells have to communicate with each other, it seems like, I think people just take it for granted that, oh, it's a hormone. And I don't know what they think, but yeah, it can be very profound. And the, the amount of messed up it can make you is quite significant. Um, yeah. yeah. And then in the, uh, in the sleep area, so it's kind of the same thing. A lot of the problem people have with sleep ends up being something along the lines of um, sleep apnea or, or something like that. And a lot of sleep apnea has to do with what's blocking the airway. Well, that also is inflammation. And sometimes it's, um, it's just because if you gain weight, um, everything gains weight, and that includes your tongue, so your tongue can block your airway. And that is some sleep apnea. But a lot of times, especially with kids, it's adenoids and tonsils and things like that that swell. And a lot of that can be related to diet and different allergens. So that's something we haven't really talked about is the allergens in our food. So something that's potentially a benign food may not be benign for you if you have an allergy to it. Yeah. Yeah. And we're starting to see more and more of those allergies popping up in kids, which yeah. can also be affecting people just on like a low grade level as well. So it's just creating this low grade inflammation in their body all the time. That's not really enough for them to think of eliminating a food, 
but it's enough to affect their health in some way. Yeah, it's funny. I was just telling a patient today that actually, for me, when people are really, really messed up, those are the easy ones because they're really, really messed up. You can tell what's wrong. You can figure it out. It's when people are just a little bit messed up. It can be really, really hard because then you can't quite figure out where it's coming from and you're not really sure how bad it is that, yeah, a low level allergy could potentially be a much more trouble than a high one. Because if you eat something and get anaphylaxis, you just know the rest of your life, don't eat that. But it's <laughs> yeah. like inflaming your guts and giving you random diarrhea, but you're not really sure what it is. That potentially is a much bigger problem because you're going to keep eating the food because you don't know what it is. Right. And that that's where I love using the carnivore diet as an elimination diet. Because across the board, very, very, very few people are sensitive to red meat. And right. so many elimination diets that a lot of, you know, different dietitians and things will do can be sort of confusing. And in my opinion, they don't eliminate enough to really understand what is affecting that person. Because there'll be, you know, this list of vegetables you can have, but this list of vegetables you can't have. And then the person is always, you know, having to figure out, can I have this? Can't I have that? Whereas a carnivore diet, it's like, eat meat drink water, salt your meat, and that's it. If it's not one of those three things, don't eat it. <laughs> Very simple. <laughs> I mean, that's the most extreme variation of the diet, you know, but if someone is dealing with something like a food sensitivity or an autoimmune condition, then they need to go to that extreme. And it doesn't have to be forever. I think people can definitely have just more of a meat based diet, but I think it's a great idea to start with at least 30 or 60 days of pure carnivore. So you bring your body back down to baseline, you eliminate the inflammation, you get rid of any foods that you are sensitive to or causing irritation. And then after that, you can start to add foods back in and then you'll really know which foods are affecting you. Cause if you only add in back in one food at a time, give it at least seven days add in one food for seven days and see if it affects you. Give it time. Sometimes you might not have reactions right away. Sometimes the reaction might be 24 hours later. Um, like for example, for myself, if I eat MSG, I get a terrible migraine that makes me go blind, but it doesn't happen until 24 hours later. Hmm. You got to give your body time to have the reactions. And then people can really figure out what sort of a diet is, is right for them. If they want to include some plant foods, in there or things like that, at least if they start out from that baseline of an elimination diet, it's just so much more empowering to know what's going on in your body. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a that is a huge, a huge deal. The whole idea of simplify your diet and then give it time. I, you know, chiropractic, we get everything needs time. So give it time because it seems like people get really impatient, like, well, I changed my diet for a whole day and I didn't notice the difference. And it's like, yeah, you got to do it longer than that. Some people, especially if you're pretty sick, it can be really slow. Like your body will really fight you. Or if you're addicted to a food like soda and you cut it out, sometimes your body will fight you for weeks because it's like, give me the stuff. And yeah. so you have to give it enough time to really get it reset before you start doing experimentation with it to find out what it can handle or can't because it'll just mislead you and trick you. Right. And that's why I say, you know, stay strict carnivore for 30 days or 60 days. Cause sometimes some people get to the end of 30 days and they haven't seen much change. And it's like, well, your body just has a lot of healing to do. Like your body was probably just really messed up. So give it another 30 days and see how you feel at the end of 60. Like, yeah, that would be great if we could all just say, Oh, let's just do a 30 day, you know, carnivore detox and we'll all be good at the end. But <laughs> reality is a lot of people are very sick. So sometimes you need to give your body more time. Yeah, and especially when you start making changes like that, um, I'm only recently kind of coming to understand the value of sweating. 
whether yeah. it's whether it's um, cardio exercise and you're doing a long endurance exercise with a lot of sweating, or even if it was like an ultra, uh, UV sauna, probably both. When you sweat and your body can eliminate, it uses that as a big source of getting toxins out of your body and getting things out uh, and elimination. And when sometimes when you first start a, a different kind of diet, your body's breaking down fat cells and it's releasing all kinds of crazy stuff. And so you got to drink plenty of water and you got to have ways of, of eliminating as fast as you can. Yeah. yeah. Flush that stuff out. Yeah. I, I, I read somewhere, I forget where I saw it, but basically what they said was that men tend to um, do um, weightlifting exercises and women tend to do cardio. And that the truth is we probably need to do the exact opposite that most women need to do more muscle building and most men need to do more cardio. And that's kind of how I got into, yeah, I'll try doing some cardio. Cause I'm like the worst offender when it comes to that. Um, but as I started doing that and then doing long endurance rides and sweating a whole lot, I felt, I felt like when I changed my diet and I wasn't doing that, I felt like I was getting, like I had stuff that I needed to eliminate. And once I started doing that, it was like, okay, I feel so much better. It's like you, it almost feels like it's in there and you got to get it out. So, um, I think that's part of it too, is making sure that elimination is working correctly when you make a diet change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. You got to give the body a pathway to get it out of the system. Yep. Uh, let's see here. I had some more notes, but I got lost because <laughs> I skipped around. <laughs> um, we went down that B1 rabbit hole. and I know. I, even when I wrote, I was like, this could be a mistake. But I'm <laughs> curious about it because I don't think that's the only one. Um, I haven't even bothered to chase down the magnesium rabbit hole, but I know that's an issue. Um, and let me think. Oh, I, I don't think I wrote it down, but there was a whole bunch of stuff that I found um, that had to do with um, the fact that medication, medications, um, vaccines, like all kinds of stuff like that function differently in your body based on your level of nutrition. And I remember I was immediately was thinking, well, that's kind of a big deal. <laughs> like, yeah. You're just going to give a drug to somebody and go, Oh, don't worry. It'll work. And yet you don't know based on their nutrition, they could get an overreaction or an underreaction. Um, and so, Oh yeah, I don't think I wrote it down, but it had to do, I gotta see if I can remember it had to do with, um, certain people it had to do with certain people who um if you underreact to medication um oh my goodness it was it was that i shouldn't say it off the top of my head because i might be wrong but it has something to do with the fact that if you underreact to medication it means you have two things <laughs> one is you have a thiamine deficiency and the second is that you have a lower iq and i was like <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> that's something. Yeah. Um, but basically what they found was that when pe the people who come in, they go, you know, I, they give the doctor gives me medication. It just doesn't work on me. Well, that's, it means that they have a thiamine deficiency, but it means that in general population, their IQ is in the bottom half. And they found that over and over wow. again. And I was like, well, that, I don't even know how you explain that. It's just a weird thing. But it, yeah. does, it does also let us know that there are people that that's the case. And yet the solution, since you obviously can't raise your IQ, the solution is get them out of thiamine deficiency and you can change the reaction of the medication. I just thought it was really strange. 
Yeah. Well, and that's curious too, for something to look at, because what you were saying about thiamine deficiency earlier in the brain, it's like, did their like thiamine deficiency cause their low IQ? <laughs> like how long have they been deficient for? Yeah, possibly. Or do they present as low IQ because they're so malnourished? Yeah. yeah. Who knows? Yeah. That's, that's another interesting rabbit hole. We got to go. <laughs> we got to go down. Yeah. It's just funny because nutrition definitely, that's why I wanted to talk with you is because nutrition definitely plays a role in what we do. And yet we're not nutritionists and it's not really what we do. And, and yet I find myself often being frustrated because I look at patients and I'm thinking a big part of your solution is going to come on the nutrition end. And once that gets settled out, then chiropractic can do what it can do. But it's hard to get good healing out of sick people, um, especially yeah. if they're sick because of what they're putting in their body or not putting in their body. Right. Yep. And that's so true. And that's where I really am like happy that I've sort of discovered the carnivore or like a meat-based way of eating, because it's a really good way to just kind of blanket over, over patients and give them something that's very nutrient dense. So if I can just encourage them to just eat more red meat and, or eat organs as well. So there's like beef organ supplements that I will recommend to people. So you're getting like beef liver, for example, like that's all I would take for a like quote unquote multivitamin is if people can just get more of that, more of the good nutrients in, they're going to start doing better right away. So that's, I feel like just the easiest step one is just encourage them to eat more red meat and encourage them to eat beef organs. And if they don't want, if they, if that grosses them out, then get them in a capsule, which you can get from ancestral supplements and just get more nutrients in. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th I think you're right. Cause meat of all things, what we're, what we get on our plate is probably as close to what came out of the farm as any food. Cause our vegetables aren't that way and our fruits aren't that way. So it really is getting about as close to the nature as you're going to get in a food. Yeah. Um, well, and so then, so here's another one I just happen to have off the top of my head because I researched this a number of years ago. I had a patient come in one time and told me that she thought that cow's milk was essentially poison. And I thought, well, that's not true because it doesn't poison the cow. <laughs> so <laughs> it can't be, that, that can't be true. And I was like, but a lot of people think this. And so I started getting really curious. And I started looking into it. So what I discovered um, with about a half a day's worth of research was that when they homogenize the milk, uh, it makes the fat droplets more absorbable, which a lot of people know. What I didn't know is that when they pasteurize the milk, it drives the casein into the fat drops, droplets. So in normal milk, it, what most people have a problem with is the protein casein. They develop an allergic reaction to it. They're not lactose intolerant. They're casein intolerant because it's a protein and you can develop an allergy to it. So when you drink raw milk, the casein is mostly free floating and it can't penetrate your gut lining. So it basically just comes out of you and you never absorb it. But when you homogenize and pasteurize it, you drive the casein into the fat droplet and then you'd make the fat droplet more absorbable. So the casein makes it into your body. And that's why people get intestinal discomfort and sick from homogenized pasteurized milk. And that is one of the things in nutrition that got me started down the road of going, okay, so what are we doing to our natural food that's taking it from being good to making it more poisonous to us? And I think we've covered a lot of those things, but that actually is what started me down that road. Um, realizing that about milk. Yeah, that's crazy. I didn't even, I didn't know that, but I do know that a lot of people do really great on raw milk, whereas they can't tolerate conventional dairy just from the grocery store, but raw milk people 
are able to drink, even if they're lactose intolerant, they tolerate raw milk. So that was what I kept hearing is that people who are lactose intolerant could drink raw milk. And I thought if they're lactose intolerant, that makes no sense. Yeah. <laughs> if they're lactose, they could still be sick. So that's why I started looking at it. I'm like, oh, they think they're lactose intolerant. They're actually having an allergy to casein. And if you just make it so they don't absorb the casein, they can drink the raw milk because they aren't going to get the casein. So it made a lot of sense to me to realize that that was what was happening. Yeah. Yeah. Processing of our food. It's not a good thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The more natural we can eat, definitely the better off we're going to be. And that's how those farmers were that Gonsta was seeing. Um, yeah. What they grew. Yeah, so. exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. I think it's been a great conversation about nutrition. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me. This is fun. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you later. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. McGetrick for joining me today. This is a topic that's been on my mind quite a bit over the last few weeks, so I'm grateful that she was so willing to join me to discuss this. In the process of looking up research, I almost always stumble across some random research, so I thought I would leave you with some encouragement from one of the random articles I discovered in the process of chasing my rabbit. I found a research article that demonstrated evidence that self-discipline is a greater predictor of success than is IQ. I don't know about you, but I find that encouraging. There isn't much you can do about IQ, but there's a ton that we can do to develop self-discipline, and diet is one of the best ways to create self-discipline. So I'll leave you with that thought, and I hope you have the best week possible. See you next time.